Today is February 12th, 2022, and for the first time, we have two guests in one interview. So I'll leave it up to you. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Hi, this is Gary Armstrong. Um, I go way, way back to WVHC-FM. I go back to, I believe, late 1960 or early 1961. Uh, when I first became involved with WVHCFM, my wife Marilyn came along a little bit later. 60, 64. So she's also an old timer, Brian. Yeah, but I hung around a long time. Brian, <laughs> back then we had we had just ceased being carrier current, and we were ten watts of muddy FM radio. That's, that sounds perfectly in line with, with the rest of the, the history I know of Hofstra Radio. It sounds, uh, it sounds entirely apropos. Uh, so tell me, uh, did you have any titles or positions uh, during your time at Hofstra Radio? Well, let's go back to the beginning. And, and you and the uh, <clears throat> conversation we had before we started recording uh, told me that as we talked, memories would jump into my mind and you are absolutely correct. I remember I was taking uh, evening courses at Hofstra. I was working. I was working full time at a department at a, a department store. I was selling children's shoes at Abraham and Strauss, and some old timers will remember that department store. At any rate, I was taking evening a couple of evening courses at Hofstra College, which it was back then, and Dr. Frank Easy was one of my first uh, professors, and. We were talking about things I wanted to do. And at that point, I wanted to become a movie star or become someone in the broadcast industry. And Dr. Easy said, well, you should, uh, you should become uh, familiar with our college radio station. And Dr. Easy led me uh, over to uh, the building that housed the radio station and took me down the steps and walked me inside the radio station. And that had to be... That had to be either late 60 or early 60 when I, that I don't remember exactly. So I walked into these uh, dimly lit rooms and Dr. Easy introduced me to Jeffrey Krause, who seemed uh, like someone I'd watched in the movies. He reminded me of a young Leslie Howard and so forth and so on. And he spoke to me in dulcet tones and welcomed me to the radio station. And that was it. Uh, I, I, was there for a good 10 or 15 to 20 minutes. But during that short period of time, uh, my, my brain must have been going crazy because I was thinking, I can do this. I like this. I like these people. So that was the, my, 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 my first uh, touchdown with, uh, with Hofstra Radio. Hmm. Um, so it wasn't your plan to, to go into radio, but you knew you wanted to do something uh, performance-wise? Well, you know, at that point, it was just, golly, this is this is radio. And I had grown up, I'm, I'm from that era where radio was our primary function of entertainment. We, we didn't have television for many years. So I was really familiar with, uh, with radio as it was. So I thought, well, maybe I could be, become part of this. And uh, I remember going home and talking to my parents about it, and they weren't really thrilled because they they wanted me to do something solid like uh, become a lawyer or a doctor or 
proceed with the merchandising, which I was doing at that time, as I mentioned. But in the back of my mind, I knew there was something about this that really, really excited me. It, it, it spoke to me. So with that as, with that as the, uh, the, the initial catalyst, uh, the, the next day, when I was through with work, I went back to Hofstra, and instead of going to my courses, which would, <laughs> which would, which would, would, would become a sign of things to come, I didn't go to my classes. I went directly to the radio station, and I sat down with Jeff Krause, and he just started talking to me because he wanted to get a sense of who I was and whether or not I could be of use to him. And he talked to me about the radio station and what positions were open. So, Gary, if I if I could follow along to that, because most of us listening to this did not know the little theater, the radio station at the little theater. So could you describe what it was like? It gave us a little bit of a detail, but so we could really get a picture of what the radio station was uh, at that time. Well, let's start with the, <clears throat> the little theater. And I'm glad you mentioned it because I was searching my mind as we were talking about the building that, uh, that housed the, uh, the radio station. The little theater was exactly that. It was a little theater. It was used for uh, smaller theatrical productions at Hofstra. And in the basement of that building was what was then WVHC-FM. You had to walk down uh, six or seven steps and let me go off on a tangent again, and I warned you about this. Over the years, those steps, because there were no facilities, no bathrooms around, <laughs> so you would have, from time to time, walking down those stairs, it would be obvious that <clears throat> uh, people, not necessarily people who worked at the radio station, people used their, those stairs to take care of Mother Nature's mm. calls. <laughs> If you mm-hmm. get that drift. It smells like mm-hmm. <laughs> But the radio station itself, when you walked through the front door, the first thing you hit, if you looked ahead when you walked through the door, was the uh, the station manager's office. It was uh, it was a chair and the desk. And back then, it was a typewriter. We were many years away from computers. Uh, that was the first thing you saw. Uh, if you turned to your left and walked down the hallway, the first thing you hit to your left was the record library. And that was a treasury. I, I looked at that record library and I thought, oh my goodness, all of these records. Those records, many of those records would disappear. And many people would deny that those records disappeared with them, but that's mm-hmm. another story. Now, if you if you continued walking down the library after leaving the library, to your left was, golly, it was Studio, let's call it Studio, Studio A. Studio A was in front. Studio B was master control. And but, Studio but, C was the booth on the left. And But when you, when you walked past the library, to your left was the office where I worked as... That was Studio C. Studio C, uh, yeah. Brian. That was where the um, the uh, production managers worked. That's not the right word. I'll think of it. But that's where I eventually wound up working. To your right, opposite Studio C, was the main program director. You were the program program, program director. Thank you, Marilyn. Uh, that's where uh, to your right of the program director's office was Studio B, and that's that was the main 
broadcast room. That's where the, the programs Master were hosted. Control. Uh, that's where the music shows were done. That's where the hosting was done. Uh, that was the main room. Now, you walk out of Studio B and you walked further down the hallway and you were at the end of the hallway now and you were in master control. And that's where the... Uh, the board. The, the, the board was, and that's where the, uh, the all of the other maintenance facilities were, and that, in a sense, that was the entire <clears throat> that was the entire physical layout of the radio station at that time. Uh, picture a really large closet. That that it. was my impression. I'm, I'm guessing these weren't spacious rooms. No. And and probably a low ceiling, I imagine. Low ceiling and no windows. No windows at all. And we were still back in the day when uh, people were smoking. So the place was always dimly lit and filled with tobacco smoke. Uh, were there windows between the studios? Nope. No. Well, between, between A oh, between and B. The, between A and B. Between that main studio where the, where the interviews were done, where the DJs hosted their shows, there was a window between that studio and Studio A where the uh, engineer sat because, you know, we, we could eyeball each other and we would get, you know, sometimes physical signals to, mm -hmm. to, to wrap it up or to do whatever it was. And, we, and, that, and that, that's where the uh, DJs and program hosts would signal the engineers. So we had that one window. For for the for the engineering types and the technical people listening to this, can you do you remember what the 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 board was like? Because it's obviously the technology's changed a great deal over the years. What was it like? Tom, I knew I knew you were going to ask me this. <laughs> I think Tom actually still has that board. I think it was called, and I may be wrong here. I think it was called a Gates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a Gates board. With was the Gates board, there were two ten. It had ten. There were two, as I recollect, there were two main turntables. We were playing LPs back then, the, mm -hmm. the uh, 33 and a thirds and the 45s. And, and we also did um, what was back, back then, it, what we called old music. Uh, there was a show called The Swing Years, and we played 78s on those turntables. And for people who are wondering about this, uh, we manually put the records on the turntables and um, cue them up and and put them to play that's a vivid description and 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 I'm, I'm really getting a sense of what it was like marilyn can i ask you when did you first come down to the station and uh what what was what was going on when you first got there well it was 1964 uh and it was i was in my sophomore year because i started when i was 16 and then i was 17 that year and I was looking for a bathroom <laughs> I mean that was it but it was you know and I didn't have a car it was right off the parking lot but you know I sort of just wandered there I was you know the nobody there were no dorms yet there was no there were no dorms there was no library there was no north campus mm. Hofstra was known as a commuting college back then you took you took the Blue Beetle, which was a school bus, which picked you up uh, in Hempstead. In Hempstead, and took you to Hofstra. This was long before there were dorms. Hmm. 
Yeah, and 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 and, and Brian, the memories are starting to filter back slowly through what I call the rotting remains of my brain. Uh, back then, uh, WVHC FM eighty eight point seven on your FM dial. Uh, Monday through Friday, we were on the air from 6 p.m. through midnight. Hmm. Saturdays and Sundays, and I'm pausing to remember, we were on the air from, I believe, 12 noon through midnight. Hmm. Uh, Monday through Friday, we started uh, after the national anthem and the, the sign-on with the with the. Li- legitimate um, announcements being made. We we began with two hours of recorded music with a show called Centerpiece. It was just wall-to-wall music, usually uh, a combination of standards and themes from films and all that sort of thing. But it was middle of the road, Tin Pan Alley stuff. Two hours of just music with... um, with the host breaking in every 15 or 20 minutes to announce, you're listening to Centerpiece on WVHC-FM. And then right back to the music. Mm. Mm. Um, Marilyn, I just I just want to go back. So you, you, you said you basically just wandered into the building. Um, yep. And did you did you have any sense of wanting to go into, into broadcasting, into communications? No, not even a little bit. But Jeffrey really liked, well... I wasn't interested in radio, but he was interested in me. So I eventually sort of wound up the chief announcer, and I also wrote all of the PR stuff, and I did the original designs of that old bird they used to use. Brian, Brian, one of the things you should understand as Marilyn is talking is that WVHC was also a, a a home for for those of us who didn't seem to fit in elsewhere on the campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was trying to think of the word to describe us. Misfits. But, uh, misfits. Thank you, Marilyn. Amen. We found uh, we found a home, and we found, and it was so wonderful for me because um, I was always the shy kid on the block in high school and elsewhere, and I felt instantly at home with these other misfits misfits at the, the radio station and I think I think we instantly knew that we were part of a family you know, we didn't have any sense of where it would take us but we felt comfortable with each other and you know uh, me as a as a young fellow who was just beginning to learn radio people sensed that. And they said, don't worry about it. Just do what you feel comfortable doing. That being said, my first job was in that studio on an old typewriter. And I spent most of my days and nights typing up program logs. I became OCD in typing up Mm. program logs. I would get, for instance, two months ahead with program logs up to the point where Jeffrey would walk in and said, you know, Gary, I, I appreciate what you're doing, but I I think we have more than enough program logs. Why don't you try something else? But it, it was a sense of being complimented for something that you did. It was it was a sense of acceptance that we didn't find anywhere else. That that to me is is the constant throughout of all the people I've spoken to so far is 
people were, whether they intended to go into radio or broadcasting or just wandered in there off the street, which happened plenty, it's that, that moment of acceptance and going, yeah, I feel like I belong here and, and having people encourage you. That's, that's, that's a constant spirit. And speaking of encouraging, uh, again, this is, this is different than things are today. As new people at the radio station, were there any training courses? How did you get prepared to go on the air? It was learning on the job. And it was, it was one of the lessons, Brian, and I'm so glad we got to this early on. It was one of the early lessons I absorbed that stood me in good stead for the rest of my life. Early on, I said to you, I'm very good at dancing on a dime. I learned how to dance on a dime with Jeff Krause in 1961 at VHC. Uh, I, as I said, uh, my first job was writing, um, prog- typing a program logs, and then I was put on to writing a script, writing scripts for a program called The Myth and the Music. Mm. Uh, it was a, it was a folk music show. It was hosted by a, a young young fellow named Lee Smith. And I wrote a script around folk music, and we found different themes in which to weave the music of Bob Dylan uh, and Joan Baez and Judy Collins and uh, Tom Lira and people like that. And I, you know, this was all brand new for me. I'd never done anything like that before. Uh, prior to prior to um, Hofstra and the radio station. The only writing I had done was uh, what I thought was going to be my young American novel. And that stuff was really awful. But I also knew I wanted, I said I wanted to be a movie star. I also wanted to be an author. In my high school yearbook, I wrote, I, when I grow up, I want to be a tremendous American author, dot, 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 <laughs> like Mickey Spillane, like Mickey Spillane, who was one of my young heroes. But anyway, back to uh, what we were talking about. There was no... There were no courses on how, how to do it. You just jumped in and did it. Now, as I wrote for this show called The Myth and the Music, I thought, well, I'm writing this show. Why why can't I host it? Hmm. And at one point, after badgering Jeff Krause time and time again, uh, he finally relented. Now, keep in mind, at that point, uh, with the hearing problems I had, being hard of hearing, I had uh, I had a horrendous speech problem. I had, I mispronounced a lot of words and I didn't know that I was mispronouncing the words, but, and this is another, another uh, part of the uh, VHC experience. Jeff Krause was aware of that. And he was aware that he would be putting me on the air with all of these speech problems, speech defects, but he let me do it. And in his mind, as he told me years later, he thought that I had the perseverance that I could work my way through my speech problems. Well, I took to, I took like with all the speech problems, I took to this like a duck out of water, and water. and 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 half a century later or more, my wife still kids me about Gary Armstrong has never met a microphone or a camera that he doesn't love. <laughs> it was it was love at first sight, uh, absolutely. I mean, there were there were I wasn't afraid. I. The, the, the red light went on, and I just started jabbering. I, I, I was home. Mm. So I, one of the first things I did was hosting this program called The Myth and the Music. 
And between my writing and overlooking some of the problems I had with my speech, uh, the, the show did well. And because the show did well and it filled one hour a week, uh, Jeff said, well, hey, that's, that's one problem out of the way. I'll let this kid keep doing it. And on the sideline, Jeff would work with me from time to time on, on my speech problems. Now, let me leapfrog ahead. We're still at VHC. Uh, let's go ahead three or four years. The movie The Great Escape had come out. Mm. That would be 1963. And I was, you know, like a lot of young guys, I was absolutely in love with the movie with Steve McQueen and the music by Elmer Bernstein. So I one evening I was hosting a show called Music from the Movies, which I also produced. And I introduced the theme from The Great Escape. Except when I pronounced it on the air, what I said was, and here now is the theme from The Great Escape. There was no S in there. I never heard the S. So I said The Great Escape. And it's hard for me now to say it the wrong way. But I said that. I did the intro. The record would, 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 was running. And I walked out of the studio. And one of my coworkers came up to me and put his hands on my shoulder and said, Gary, I, I, I hope you don't take offense at this. I, I hope I don't hurt you. But you mispronounced a word in there. And I said, what are you talking about? And he, his name was Gene Snyder. We can mention names because he's, he's beloved by many people who know the history of WDHCFM. Gene Snyder said to me, Gary, you didn't say escape. You said escape. You didn't have an S in there. And I'm so sorry to have to tell you this. And I, I immediately said, Gene, don't apologize. I, I appreciate that. Hmm. So I, I, that was branded in my mind that I was having problems correctly pronouncing T's and S's and D's and C's. Well, that led me, Brian, to taking speech therapy courses to improve my diction. Hmm. And with my improved diction... That was one of the things that enabled me to, with, with, with the future looking at me, to get jobs because I had good diction. And that I have to thank to one friend at the radio station and Jeff Krause and the radio station. And Lois Cruz. And the Cruz for affording me the opportunity to, to work on my speech problems which were d directly linked to my, my hearing loss. Mm. Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing. Oh, and, and I just, I, and I have to apologize for jumping in. The other thing that just hit me was um, I was the only person of color working at the radio station. Mm. I was one of a, just a handful of, of students of color at Hofstra. So when we were talking about misfits, the, the race thing also played a big factor. But having said that, race was never never an issue with the radio station. You know, being a misfit meant all kinds of different things. Um, I never I never really thought about being a person of color at the radio station as I did almost every other place I was. Hmm. How many other people were working at the station about that time? Oh golly, um, I would say probably between eight and twelve. Uh, that's what I was going to say. I was going to go with a max of 12. Hmm. And, and were, a lot of them were just there for like an hour or a week. Some people would just drift in just to see what was going on. Some people just came down to uh, do their show. 
the only people who were really constants, the only people you could really depend on were the people who worked the boards, the, the engineers, because they, they took their work very seriously. They took their shifts with, uh, with due conscience. We had people like uh, a fellow named Rick Cohan. Uh, we called him Ricky Teenager because he was, what, 14 or 15 years old? Yeah. And he, he as he came down and introduced himself, and, and Jeff sort of looked at him uh, aghast, uh, Rick Cohan turned out to be very efficient uh, uh, behind the turntable and working on the equipment. And we had another young man who came along a few years later. His name was Ross Mitchell. And he was 13. He was 13 mm. years old and looked like he was eight years old. <laughs> but he was, he was, we didn't know then, but he was a genius in many different ways. He would go on to uh, succeed uh, uh, as an adult in, in many ways in business. And we're still good friends with Ross Mitchell and his family. Uh, and what did we have a nickname for Ross? I don't remember. No, I think we called him Ross. We just called him Ross, or oh, the kid. That's what we called. Him. We called him the kid. <laughs> no, what I'm what I'm doing in slipshod fashion is giving you a sense of, you know, this gathering of misfits who together uh, poured life into WVHCFM. I I think there's a again another constant theme throughout the history of this radio station, that there's a, a dedicated group of uh, half dozen, a dozen people who are there, who put in a ton of time and effort to make the station run. And then there are people who come and go at various degrees that bring their own uh, style or their own thing to it and, and make it a more complete package. I think that's that's true, whether it's the 60s, 70s, 80s, or, or, or even today. I think that's I think that's a constant. It is. It is. And Brian, it gave us a sense of, I've talked about myself, uh, it gave us, gave us a sense, people like me who had, you know, problems. I was not only, uh, I had the problems with my addiction. Uh, I also was a, a klutz. You know, we were talking about, uh, master control, the, uh, the, the area where we had the uh, turntables, etc. Uh, I did. I wasn't very good at that. I mean, I, I had a shot at sitting there and doing what we called comboing. Mm-hmm. You sat at the turn. You sat in a chair with the turntables in front of you, and you not only played the music, you also had the microphone in front of you. You you were both the host and the engineer, and that's that was what you would call really being a star when you did everything. And there were a couple of people who could do that well. One fellow was uh, Bob Ring, mm-hmm. who did a show called Night Saw. And Bob Ring was so smooth behind the board. Uh, he did. He was one of the first people who introduced me to the art of doing segues, blending one record into another so smoothly that you didn't know that one record had actually ended and another record had begun. Mm. Well, I learned how to do that from Bob Ring. And I used that technique, the segue technique. You can use that in writing. I learned how to transfer that also later on in my career in television, blending one video scene into another. So WVHC-FM and the people who work there, we taught each other. Uh, I, I would like to say that I used my writing to help other people enhance their music skills and vice versa. Hmm. 
So we, we kind of, you, you asked before whether or not whether there were any uh, teaching classes. We taught each other. Hmm. Uh, Marilyn, did you uh, do on-air work? Did you uh, Were you behind yep. the board? Yes, I didn't work behind the board because I actually hated it. <laughs> Who knew I was going to wind up in tech for the rest of my life? But uh, I did, oh, I don't know, I did a whole thing on Indian music and and I... I was the first person to do an all music, no voice radio show. I didn't like Gary loves being on the air. I don't. Hmm. <laughs> well, I that, liked the music. I didn't really like, I really didn't like talking. That's that's uh, Marilyn is absolutely true. But having said that <clears throat> I loved talking, yes, but I also learned early on that less talk and more music uh, proved to be more successful. Just, uh, but for some of us, uh, give us an open microphone and uh, uh, who knows where we're going to go, right? <laughs> well, you know, one of the things, Brian, that um, on this subject of uh, voice versus music, I, I think it spoke to our egos. And you know, I, as I said, I was and I really still am. And it was one of those bizarre things in my career, in my life. But um when you have the mic there, your ego just flowed. If you and if you were a shy person, this is this was your opportunity to shine. But at one point, and I don't really remember where or when. I remember the the where, obviously. But Jeff came in and said, "You know, Gary, that was a nice show, but you were talking too much." And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, you played good music, and 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 the show went well, but we needed more music and less of you." And that I, I got that right away. And from that point on, I understood that the music really was a star as opposed to me. Hmm. I was just going to say uh, the fellow Bob Ring, who I mentioned before, who uh, became sort alive. of a, became sort of a, actually, I, 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 I'm dancing around the word because it's overused. I didn't want to say I idolized him, but I really looked up to Bob Ring because he, he had a good sense of how to blend music. And with this night song program I'm talking about, it was the last show to air during the course of our broadcast week, Monday through Friday. And he played a lot of mood music. And it was like, if you remember, Brian, uh, if, if you recall the old WNEWAM mm -hmm. radio station, um, that, was, that was like... Um, that was Hollywood for those of us in radio because they played our kind of music. They played Sinatra and Count Basie and big band stuff. And the, the announcers just let the music flow. They had people like um, William B. Williams and, and others, Martin Block. And we all aspired I to sound that. like the people on WNEW. And I remember, and I don't have any embarrassment talking about this now because I'm old enough to realize some of the schlock that I did when I was younger. But I remember doing a promo that I stole entirely from WNEW. It was something about, and the promo was something like a Long, Island, Long Island After Dark, and we had music playing under me, soft music playing under me. And I said, Long Island After Dark, only in WVHC-FM, you'll hear people like Bill Basie, 
yada da yada da yada da. You know, nobody called Count Basie Bill Basie except the guys on WNEW. Mm-hmm. But here I am, Gary Armstrong on WVHCFM calling him Bill Basie. That's the kind of stuff you do when you're young and you think that it's, it's your, your work and that nobody is going to know you stole from others, right. but we stole from everyone. Yeah. Uh, and as you I, as I later... Let me have a, get a word in at some point, okay? Sure. But as I was later told by William B. Williams, who was one of many celebrities, and that's another story we can get to, uh, William B. Williams later said, well, he stole from someone else, so I shouldn't feel bad about it. Marilyn? Yes, well, you know... Uh... You may have been stealing. I never stole anything. I wrote my own stuff. <laughs> I still write my own stuff. Brian, she's I've a been good writer, writer. I've been but... a professional writer my whole life. Okay, my dear. Well, well, well <laughs> Marilyn, before we, we started recording, you mentioned that uh, you had intended to be a writer and you weren't necessarily thinking about radio. So how does, how does that yeah. blend together? Well, the ra- radio was fun. And I really liked the people. And I really enjoyed being there, but it was really obvious to me that I was never going to be a great on-the-air personality. I just wasn't. I can't work when I can't see people's faces. I'm a good public speaker if I'm working to a live audience, Mm -hmm. but in a studio where the only person is the guy in master control who looks completely bored and has no interest in what's going on except, you know, to make sure the records run and the tapes run. You know, for me, the, there was no eye contact. There was no feedback. Hmm. For me, uh, it was just the opposite, um, Brian. It was once once the once the red light went on and we start. I started talking. And I, I initially I used to program my music on on the shows I did, but I reached a point where I would just have a stack of records, and I would hand the engineer two or three records to start the show, and then I just sort of ad libbed my way through the rest of the show, depending on my mood and how the show was going, and that was another that was another thing that the radio station gave me the ability to, to ad lib, to go in the moment and have a sense of, you had a sense in your head and in your heart, how the show was going. So you didn't need a script really. Um, you just knew what was, what should happen. And that, that's something you, you can't teach. It's something you either have or you don't have. And there were some people who, who tried to do that and they failed because they weren't relaxed it was it was like the old um, you, you talk about things that the radio station taught you, and I, I'm going to go off on another tangent. And it, it's about doing interviews. Um, one of the things I I picked up at VHC was when you're talking to people, when you're doing an interview like we're doing now, and like you're doing, Brian, you listen to what people are saying, and you pick up from what they're, what they're saying to go on to the next question. That's a real interview. It's two people talking. Mm-hmm. But that began at VHC. Uh, prior to that, when I watched, you know, talk shows or interview shows on, on radio and uh, on television, I marveled at how people 
did this with seemingly with these. And I, I didn't understand how they did it. And someone said, well, you write down all the questions. And now that that's really, that's one of those things that really sinks a lot of people who want to be successful in news or radio or whatever else. You, 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 you may have a few cards, you, you know, the night, the late night show host, like Colbert and others, they, they have these green cards with questions for their guests. But that's only kind of a lead lead in, because once you ask that first question, your guest is going to go off and God knows what kind of direction. And if you're not listening, the interview is going to die. Mm-hmm. So I learned early on at VHC that you ask a question and then you listen to what the person says. And I think I said in my note to you, one of the first one of one of the first of many celebrities who made themselves available to our radio station was Merv Griffin, mm. who was a, a big deal then. And we did the interview with Merv Griffin in at his studio in Manhattan. And I thought it, it was it was okay. I didn't make any mistakes and I don't think I had any diction problems. And when we were packing up our gear gear, Merv Griffin said to me, uh, Gary, uh, I think you're going to have a really good career. And I thought he was just being nice to me. And I said, well, Mr. Griffin, well, Mr. Mr. Griffin, as I tried to get my voice deeper, uh, what do you mean? And he said, you were really good. And I said, you said that, but what do you mean by that? And he said, you listened to me. And I sort of blinked at him stupidly. And I said, but it, 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 it and I stumped, I stuttered. I said, isn't that what you're supposed to do? And Griffin says, yes, but not many people listen. You keep doing that and you're going to do well. So I never forgot that. And again, that's something I learned at WVHC on the job. Hmm. So so with the, to, to take that note, hopefully in the right direction, as I'm listening to the two of you talk about your experiences and the people who are around, two things keep bouncing around in my head that I'd like to know were, were there many other women working there and were there other, I, I, for lack of a better term, grownups at the station, were there role models who people who had experience who no. could give you an idea? No, it's just all kids. There were not many other there women. Was, there was Jeffrey who thought he was a hundred years old. Jeffrey was three years older than me, but he always wanted to give you the impression that he was 10 years older. When I first met Jeffrey, I was 18 and he was 21. He was wearing what we called the old blue suit, which mm-hmm. used to shine because it was so old. He was wearing this blue suit, uh, white shirt, and he had an ascot. And I thought, <laughs> man, this is cool. He looks like he looks like those guys I see in the old movies. He looked like Leslie Howard. And he had a beard smoking a pipe. Jeffrey was colorblind. Oh. So a lot of the clothing that he wore was a little strange because he refused to believe that he was colorblind. So to him, green looked like gray, light blue looked like gray, and even pink looked like gray. So a lot of his clothing to him, it all matched. Unfortunately, it didn't to anybody else. Okay, that said, back to your question about adults and women. As we said, there were there were very few women over the years. There was one other woman, and she came in around the same time I did, the name of, well, now she's Sue Ronneberger. She's alive, too. She's in New York. Um, and she didn't do much talking. She was mostly engineering, and 
In fact, she worked the rest of her life as an engineer at ABC. ABC, yeah, ABC. Um, but really, until I was just about ready to leave, which was in the late, you know, the the late sixties when I was ready to graduate, um, there she was the other woman. I don't think there were any others. Hmm. And in terms of adults. Somebody who wasn't a, a, a late teen or 20-something, there were very few. There was a fellow called named Bob Hensler mm-hmm. who was working in commercial radio uh, at the time. He was working at a station called WTHE on Long Island, which had another set of call letters, which I can't remember at the time. But Bob was, a th- I think, a 30-something at the time. And he was an adult, and he worked, with the, he worked with us kids, and he would share some of his experiences and insight and advice. So there's that. And from time to time, we had, we had older people who would come in just to do their, their own shows. We had a fellow who came in to do a jazz show. We had an older fellow who came in to do classical music. But by and large, it was just us kids doing all these shows, us kids pretending to be older than we were. We winged it. What we did. Uh, Does that give you a sense of what it was like, Brian? Yes, absolutely it does. And and my follow-up question, and I think I know where this is going to go, but my follow-up question is how much was Hofstra College or university, how much did they monitor? Did they keep an eye on things? Was there anybody from the university who kind no. of... No. No? They paid no attention to us at all, except to periodically tell us that they were going to take away our budget. Then Jeffrey would have a big fight with somebody and they would say, okay, fine, you can have a budget. But every year, that was pretty much their involvement in the station. I don't think anybody for years, ever even listened to the station. I don't think they had any idea what we were doing. We, we didn't have very much input. Uh, let me give you two things. Dr. Frank Easy, who was a speech uh, professor and also um, taught the history of radio, I believe, uh, he was sort of a conduit. He was, you know, the, the, he would bring us uh, messages from the, from the president and other members of the faculty about what they liked or didn't like. He spoke directly to Jeffrey. Uh, So Dr. Frank Easy was perhaps our adult liaison for the campus. Uh, And there was, I'm trying to remember the fellow who was uh, in charge of engineering officially, Jeffrey, golly, I can't remember his name. I remember his face, but I don't remember his name. I'm going to say Jeffrey Heard, but I don't think No, that's wrong. I, I forget his last name, but he was another adult, and we but had we had really an even involved. older gentleman who helped with the uh, with, with with the equipment. But by and large, this place was run by the kids, uh, and we we you as we it. learned what we were doing, we made our mistakes and we learned by our mistakes. It also reminds me of did anyone listen? That was always hard to tell. I remember once. Uh, my pastor from from the church I attended gave me a call and said, I was just listening to you, Gary. Mm. And I just flipped out. A, it was my pastor, and B, that somebody was actually listening. And he he sort of complimented me on what I was doing and 
I was beaming, but we didn't, there wasn't very much. So, you know, we did what we did and uh, we learned from that. And maybe that was the best of times uh, when we were, when we were still young and we went from 10 watts to 50 watts. 50 and then finally to 500. 500. And the thing is, uh, the more we grew, the more interference there was from the outside. And that's what Marilyn was making a reference to uh, the, 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 the campus suits, as I call them, would, would try to put their fingers into what we were doing. Mostly they tried to take away our budget. Pretty they much, tried to take away the budget. They, they tried to interfere with programming. And Jeff Krauss uh, bore the brunt of most of it uh, and allowed us to, to do what we were doing. Hmm. I lived with him. Marilyn is saying again she lived with him, so she probably, she probably absorbed some of the stuff that oh, Jeff dealt yeah. with when he brought it home. But oh, the rest yeah. of us... Uh, we, you know, we, we knew some things were happening. We knew there were problems. But uh, as I say, Jeff bore the brunt of it. So we were left free to pursue what we were doing. And th- that was sort of an ideal situation. <clears throat> Excuse me, because you were doing your shows and no one was, re- no one was really uh, getting in the way of what you did. We were experimenting. We made our mistakes. We learned from our mistakes. And we just went on. And, and and I say that was the best of all worlds because I can look I can look forward to all everything I did after Hofstra Radio and I always had someone to answer to because of course when you're working in the commercial world, you have people to answer to. They're paying your salary. So it's never going to be the way it was Back the, the way it was in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning and how ironic is this? In the beginning, when you were kids and you were working at your first radio station, you had these dreams of being a, a, a success in the commercial world. So it, 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 it reminds you of that line about be careful of what you wish for, mm-hmm. because the best of times had to be back when I was a young man learning my craft at WVHCFM. You know, looking back at all this, and and I'm so pleased that you shared these stories and, and your memories, and obviously Hofstra Radio had a tremendous effect on both of your lives. But if you could, just in, could you get back to where you were when you were 18 or 17 years old and you're first getting settled into this station in the little theater in the basement, what did you think this experience was going to be for you? Can you can you go back to to that moment as a young person saying I think this uh, is what I want? Yeah, it's a great question because that's exactly what happened. I uh, you know obviously I I had a lot of young dreams about as I said being a movie star or a writer or something like that. But I I didn't have a clear vision of um, what I wanted to do. I had I had prior to Hofstra. And the radio station prior to that, right out of high school, I had uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps. I had, at that point, I thought I would be be a career Marine. And uh, uh, and out of that, I would take um, the uh, veterans benefits and go to college. So that preceded Hofstra and the radio station. Now, I, 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 I was... Uh, 
because of my hearing problems, I received a medical from the Marine Corps, which thrust me back into civilian life at age 18. And I was completely lost. I didn't know what I was going to do. And so I started taking the night courses at Hofstra and found VHC. And this is answering your question, but I was still adrift. What was I going to do? After my first few days at, at the radio station and seeing the possibilities, it just it just locked in. I just knew. There are things you know in your life, this is it. Uh, did I know I was going to do the things I did after VHC? No, but I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in radio. You know, television was sort of over the horizon at that point. I just, And I also knew that I could do it. And one of the things... I should say is, uh, you know, I, as I said, I wasn't really physically gifted. I wasn't, I wasn't any good at sports. Um, I laugh at myself because my, my, I'm the oldest of three brothers. My youngest brother is musically gifted, as is my middle brother, but I couldn't hold a tune. I, I never had any rhythm, and people have, you know, laughed at me for that. So, I, golly, what was I going to do at that point? And for, for young men of color your vistas were really limited uh, 60 years ago. But working at VHC gave me a sense of, I can do this, and I can do this well. And 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 that that sense of doing uh, was fired up by Jeff Krause and the people I worked with. They let me know that, yeah, I could, I could do this. I, I was successful at doing this. And when I went home from, from uh, the radio station and from the college, Instead of studying my, my courses, as I should have done, I was sitting down and writing down thoughts about what I could do for the radio station. So whether or not I really knew it 100% for sure, uh, I had crafted the road for my future because of VHC. It gave me a sense of being, of who I could be. And for me, even though it was a radio station, and even though my next two jobs were in radio, and I have ultimately, as soon as I could, I went back into print. I did a lot of writing for WVHC. I wrote their newsletter. Mm. I wrote scripts. I edited scripts. I'm a, I got. I mean, I turned out to be a very, very good writer and editor. And I got my first real opportunity to write things that other people wrote, read there. I mean, before that, I'd only been writing for myself and hoping some magazine somewhere would publish it. But there I got to write something and other people read it. And Marilyn touches on another key thing. Um, we got, because there was it was learning on the job, as we've mentioned, uh, we had the freedom allowed us to find ourselves, to find out who we were as writers or announcers or whatever. But we had the freedom to explore and learn, which is which is a, a precious thing that I don't know how how much of that is available to W to their current uh, Hofstra radio station because you've bloomed and grown in size, and sometimes success robs us of those valuable uh, things that we had when we were in in a simpler form because no one no one if. People were listening. They never said we were good or bad or whatever. So we just plowed on doing what we were doing. So going back to what you you asked me, at age 18 or 19, I knew I liked what I was doing. 
And I somehow knew that I could, I could make a career out of it. And, and that was, I can't begin to tell you how important it was to me. I had difficulty explaining this to my family because, you know, they just didn't think there was much of a future in it for me. But yeah. I knew for sure. My family, too. They, they thought I should be a teacher. Yeah. I said, I'm going to be a writer. Yeah. They said, there's no money in that. I said, yes, there is. And I'm going to be a writer. My, my, my family, my mother especially, was, remained skeptical until she met Jeff Krause, who was, could be so charming when he wanted to be. And he visited my house and mm-hmm. chatted with my mother. And that changed the ballgame for me. Uh, my, my mother was so charmed by Jeffrey and later on by his son, Owen, who became my godson just, and is now my stepson and lives with us now. So the circle is completed. But, you know, my life mm. was sort of solidified right then and there, Brian. Mm. And, and Marilyn, to, uh, to, to go back to being a young woman at the time, wanting to have a career in, in writing, that must have, there, there probably were very few well, role know, models at the time. It's really funny. I was born when they still had advertisements listed as women and men, and by which they meant white women and white men. But above and beyond that, I sort of watched the metamorphosis where they finally had to make it all the jobs were for everybody. I never worried about role models. I just knew what I wanted to do, and I knew I was going to do it, and I was good at it. And I, I had I had no role models. Brian. From the beginning, I was always a good writer. I could, even though obviously I got better over the past 60 some odd years, uh, I had a gift for writing. And what WVHC did was give me the opportunity to use it as, in something other than writing a paper for school. Because the problem for most beginning writers is they don't get the opportunity to write for anybody but a teacher. And teachers' ability to judge the quality of your writing has absolutely no basis in the reality outside college. You, you were able to, Brian, you were able to find your own voice. And that's something that uh, some people never find. Uh, many, many artists, many people who have quote unquote, found success. Uh, and I'm thinking of, uh, I'm thinking of film actors right now, but they're imitating other people. The opportunities we had at WVHC, yeah, we, we got to do a lot of stuff. We got to get the, the worst of our writing out now. I would shudder to, to, to listen to some <laughs> of the stuff I wrote back then. But, you know, that was good. It enabled me to do it, to, to, to try and to stumble, to fail, to rewrite and, and have people appraise my work. And I could see if you if you wanted to do a graph of the, the quality of work you did, you could see the graph going steadily up during your time at WVH, WVHFM. In the begin, beginning, we clearly were raw. We were just learning. So the stuff we did was, oh, my God purple prose, horrible, but we, we learned. And Jeffrey, in his own way, would speak to us about some of the stuff we did. And of course, we, we argued with him. We didn't see how, how bad we were, but we learned through those mistakes. And while I'm on that subject, the, the formats we used for writing 
WBHCFM. And I'm thinking now of thinking the, of scripts. the scripts. And, you know, the simple things such as um, this, the, uh, the, the information for the engineers uh, would be on one side of the page mm -hmm. in my mind's eye and thinking they used to be on the left-hand side. And the right-hand side was uh, designated for the script for the narrators or the readers. That's what we did at WVHCFM. And that's how I wrote my stuff at VHCFM. And it became, you know, that's the way we do stuff. Now, when I went on to other jobs, including ABC Friggin' Network, that's how I wrote. The, the tech information was on the left-hand side. The script information was on the right-hand side. And it was, it was clear cut. And one of the things you have to understand was they didn't have script formats like that back at the commercial networks or commercial TV and radio stations. So wherever I went and, and wrote in this manner, people w went over the moon about this. They would say, Gary, this is terrific. This is wonderful. We're going to adopt this. Can you believe network people telling a former college guy they were using his formats? Mm -hmm. And I would just keep saying, guys, I learned this at the college radio station. They still use that format. And they still use that format. Now they call it in, in, I know it, at, at, at ABC, they called it, whether they were kidding with me or not, I don't know. But I know in Boston, where I worked for 31 years on television, they called it the Gary Armstrong script. Even though I kept mm. telling them, no, no, I learned this at my little college radio station. So you see, VHC, Hofstra Radio, followed me throughout my professional life. And people say, oh, that's nice. You're being so nice to the place you started. I said, no, I, I'm just being honest. I'm just, I'm just so appreciative of all that I learned and all that I was given. And I tried to say that, um, oh, years back when we, had, we began the Hall of Fame ceremonies. And we had people like mm -hmm. Dan Ingram and, and others there. And most of the people who in, were in that first Hall of Fame class, we all said the same thing. You know, yeah, we, 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 we've had some professional success, but it would not have been possible if we had not worked at that little radio station in the basement. Marilyn, Gary, I'm so glad we were able to connect and to have this conversation this afternoon. Uh, I am just, I'm so thrilled that you shared these stories and I cannot wait to share these uh, with some other folks. And I will come up with some more questions and uh, we'll have another conversation sometime. All right. Thank you, Brian.